This is The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, Part 2. Silent and thoughtful, as she had always been, she now became much more so. Her sisters asked her what she had seen on her first visit to the surface, but she wouldn't say. Many a morning and many an evening she rose up to where she had left the prince. She saw the fruit in the garden ripen and be gathered. She saw the snow melt on the peaks, but she never saw the prince, and so she always turned back more despondent than ever. Her one comfort was to sit in the little garden with her arms around the beautiful marble statue which was so like the prince. She never looked after her flowers, and they grew into a sort of wilderness out over the paths and braided their long stalks and leaves onto the branches of the trees until the light was quite shut out. At last, she could keep it to herself no longer, but told one of her sisters, and immediately all the rest got to know, but nobody else, except for a few other mermaids who didn't breathe a word to any but their nearest friends. One of these was able to say who the prince was. She, too, had seen the party that was held on board the ship and knew where he came from and whereabouts his kingdom was. Come on, little sister, said the other princesses. And with arms round each other's shoulders, they rose in one line out of the sea, just in front of where the prince's castle stood. It was built in a glistening stone of pale yellow, with great flights of marble steps. One of these led straight into the sea. Splendid gilt domes curved above the roof, and between the pillars that went right round the building were lifelike sculptures in marble. Through the clear glass in the tall windows, you could see the most magnificent rooms. These were hung with sumptuous silk curtains and tapestries, and their walls were covered with large paintings that were a delight to the eye. In the middle of the biggest room was a huge splashing fountain. Its spray was flung high up to the glass dome in the ceiling, through which the sun shone down onto the water and the beautiful plants growing in the great pool. Now she knew where he lived, and many an evening and many a night she would come to the surface at that spot. She swam much closer to the shore than any of the others had ever dared. She even went up the narrow creek under the fine marble balcony that threw its long shadow across the water. Here, she would sit and gaze at the young prince, who imagined he was quite alone in the clear moonlight. Often in the evening, she saw him go out to the strains of music in his splendid vessel that was dressed with flags. She peeped out from among the green rushes and... When the wind caught her long silvery veil and someone saw it, they fancied it was a swan spreading its wings. On many nights, when the fishermen were at sea with their torches, she heard them speaking so well of the young prince, and that made her glad she had saved his life when he drifted about half dead on the waves, and she thought of how closely his head had rested on her bosom and how lovingly she had kissed him, but he knew nothing whatsoever about that never even dreamed she existed. Fonder and fonder she became of human beings. More and more she longed for their company. Their world seemed to her to be so much larger than her own. You see, they could fly across the ocean in ships, climb the tall mountains high above the clouds, and the lands they owned stretched with woods and meadows further than her eyes could see. There was so much she would have liked to know, but her sisters couldn't answer all her questions, and so she asked the old grandmother, 
for she knew all about the upper world, as she so aptly called the countries above the sea. If people don't drown, asked the little mermaid, can they go on living forever? Don't they die, as we do down here in the sea? Yes, yes, said the old lady. They too have to die. Their lifetime is even shorter than ours. We can live for three hundred years, but when our life here comes to an end, we merely turn into foam on the water. We haven't even a grave down here among those we love. We've no immortal soul. We shall never have another life. We're like the green rush. Once it's been cut, it can't grow green again. But human beings have a soul, which lives forever, still lives after the body is turned to dust. The soul goes climbing up through the clear air, up till it reaches the shining stars, just as we rise up out of the sea and look at the countries of human beings. So, they rise up to beautiful, unknown regions, ones we shall never see. Why haven't we got an immortal soul? The little mermaid asked sadly. I would give the whole three hundred years I have to live to become for one day a human being and then share in that heavenly world. You mustn't go worrying about that, said the grandmother. We're much happier and better off here than the people who live up there. So then I'm doomed to die and float like foam on the sea, never to hear the music of the waves or see the lovely flowers in the red sun. Isn't there anything at all I can do to win an immortal soul? No, said the old lady. Only if a human being loved you so much that you were more to him than father and mother. If he clung to you with all his heart and soul, and let the priest put his right hand in yours as a promise to be faithful and true here and in all eternity, then his soul would flow over into your body, and you too would get a share in human happiness. He would give you a soul, and yet keep his own, but that can never happen. The very thing that's so beautiful here in the sea, your fish's tail, seems ugly to people on the earth. They know so little about it that they have to have two clumsy supports called legs in order to look nice. That made the little mermaid sigh and look sadly at her fish's tail. We must be content, said the old lady. Let's dance and be gay for the three hundred years we have to live. That's a good time, isn't it? Then one can have one's fill of sleep in the grave all the more pleasantly afterwards. Tonight we're having a court ball. That was something more magnificent than we could ever see on the earth. In the great ballroom, walls and ceiling were made of thick but quite clear glass. Several hundred enormous shells, rose red and grass green, were ranged on either side, each with a blue burning flame which lit up the whole room and, shining out through the walls, lit up the sea outside as well. Countless fishes, big and small, could be seen swimming towards the glass walls. The scales on some of them shone purple-red, and on others like silver and gold. Through the middle of the ballroom flowed a wide running stream on which mermen and mermaids danced to their own beautiful singing. No human beings have voices so lovely. The little mermaid sang the most sweetly of them all, and they clapped their hands for her. And for a moment, there was joy in her heart, for she knew that she had the most beautiful voice on earth and sea. But... Then her thoughts soon returned to the world above her. She couldn't forget the handsome prince, and her sorrow at not possessing, like him, an immortal soul. So, she crept out of her father's palace, and, while all in there was song and merriment, she sat grieving in her little garden. 
Suddenly, she caught the sound of a horn echoing down through the water, and she thought, Ah, there he is, sailing up above. He whom I love more than father or mother. He who is always in my thoughts, and in whose hands I would gladly place the happiness of my life. I will dare anything to win him and an immortal soul. While my sisters are dancing there in my father's palace, I will go to the sea witch. I have always been dreadfully afraid of her, but perhaps she can help me and tell me what to do. So the little mermaid left her garden and set off for the place where the witch lived, on the far side of the roaring whirlpools. She had never been that way before. There were no flowers growing, no seagrass, nothing but the bare, gray, sandy bottom stretching right up to the whirlpools, where the water went swirling round like roaring mill wheels and pulled everything it could clutch down with it to the depths. She had to pass through the middle of these battering eddies in order to get to the sea witch's domain, and here, for a long stretch, there was no other way than over hot, bubbling mud. The witch called it her swamp. Her house lay behind it in the middle of an extraordinary wood. All the trees and bushes were polyps, half animals and half plants. They looked like hundred-headed snakes growing out of the earth. All the branches were long, slimy arms with supple, warm-like fingers, and joint by joint, from the root up to the very tip, were continuously on the move. They wound themselves tight round everything they could clutch hold of in the sea, and they never let go. The little mermaid was terribly scared as she paused at the edge of the wood. Her heart was throbbing with fear. She nearly turned back, but then she remembered the prince and the human soul, and that gave her courage. She wound her long, flowing hair tightly round her head so that the polyps shouldn't have that to clutch her by. She folded both her hands across her breast and darted off just as a fish darts through the water in among the hideous polyps, which reached out for her with their supple arms and fingers. She noticed how each of them had something they had caught, held fast by a hundred little arms like hoops of iron, white skeletons of folk who had been lost at sea and sunk to the bottom looked out from the arms of the polyps. Ships' rudders and chests were gripped tight, skeletons of land animals, and, most horrible of all, a small mermaid whom they had caught and throttled. Now she came to a large, slimy, open space in the wood where big, fat water snakes were frisking about and showing their hideous, whitish-yellow bellies. In the middle was a house built of the bones of human folk who had been wrecked. There sat the sea witch, letting a toad feed out of her mouth, just as we might let a little canary come and peck sugar. She called the horrible, fat water snakes her little chicks and allowed them to sprawl about her great, spongy bosom. I know well what you're after, said the sea witch. How stupid of you. Still, you shall have your way, and it'll bring you into misfortune, my lovely princess. You want to get rid of your fish's tail and in its place have a couple of stumps to walk on like a human being, so that the young prince can fall in love with you and you can win him in an immortal soul? And with that, the witch gave such a loud, repulsive laugh that the toad and the snakes fell to the ground and remained sprawling there. You've just come at the right time, said the witch. Tomorrow, once the sun's up, I couldn't help you for another year. I shall make you a drink. And before sunrise, you must swim to land, sit down on the shore, and drink it up. Then your tail will divide in two and shrink into what humans call pretty legs. 
but it'll hurt. It'll be like a sharp sword going through you. Everyone who sees you will say that you are the loveliest human child they have ever seen. You will keep your graceful movements. No dancer can glide so lightly, but every step you take will feel as if you're treading on a sharp knife. Enough to make your feet bleed. Are you ready to bear all that? If you are, I'll help you. Yes, said the little mermaid, and her voice trembled. But she thought of her prince and the prize of an immortal soul. Still, don't forget this, said the witch. Once you've got human shape, you can never be a mermaid again. You can never go down through the water to your sister's or your father's palace. And if you don't win the prince's love so that he forgets father and mother for you and always has you in his thoughts and lets the priest join your hands together to be man and wife, then you won't get an immortal soul. The first morning after the prince marries someone else, your heart must break and you become foam on the water. I'm ready, said the little mermaid. Pale as death. Then there's me to be paid, said the witch. And you're not getting my help for nothing. You have the loveliest voice of all down here at the bottom of the sea. With that voice, no doubt, you think to enchant him. But that voice you shall hand over to me. I demand the best that you have for me to make a rich drink. You see, I have to give you my own blood in order that the drink may be as sharp as a two-edged sword. But if you take my voice, said the little mermaid, what shall I have left? Your lovely form, said the witch, your graceful movements and your speaking eyes. With those you can easily enchant a human heart. Well, where's your spunk? Put out your tongue and let me cut it off in payment. Then you shall be given the potent mixture. Go on, then said the little mermaid, and the witch put the kettle on for brewing the magic drink. Cleanliness before everything, she said, as she scoured out the kettle with a bundle of snakes she had knotted together. Next, she scratched her breast and let her black blood drip into the kettle. The steam took on the weirdest shapes, terrifying to look at. The witch kept popping fresh things into the kettle, and when it boiled up properly, it sounded like a crocodile in tears. At last, the brew was ready. It looked like the clearest water. There you are, said the witch, and cut off the little mermaid's tongue. She was now dumb, and could neither sing nor speak. If the polyps should catch hold of you as you go back through the wood, said the witch, throw but a single drop of this drink on them, and their arms and fingers will burst into a thousand pieces. But the little mermaid had no need to do that. The polyps shrank from her in terror when they saw the dazzling drink that shone in her hand like a glittering star. So she quickly came through the wood, the swamp, and the roaring whirlpools. She could see her father's palace. The lights were out in the great ballroom. They were all certain to be asleep in there by this time, but she didn't anyhow dare to look for them. Now that she was dumb and was going to leave them forever, she felt as if her heart must break for grief. She stole into the garden, picked one flower from each of her sister's flower beds, blew a thousand finger kisses toward the palace, and rose then through the dark blue sea.
Thanks for listening to my podcast. I created Telling Tales to really dive into one of my true loves of life, fairy tales. If you love them too, then please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. You can stay up to date by following me on Instagram, at Telling Tales. Have a magical day.